I'm Jordan Fees. And I'm Adam Kaiser. With us is Greg Brower, Chief Global Compliance Officer at Wynn Resorts. Greg's background includes positions at the DOJ, the U.S. Government Publishing Office, and even the FBI. While not every role was strictly in compliance, Greg has a talent for taking challenging situations and drawing valuable lessons that can be applied to risk mitigation. But before we dive into our conversation, let's cover some of the trending topics impacting practitioners. Adam, what is happening in the world of compliance? Well, instead of covering the latest in compliance today, we actually have a little bit of an announcement. Over the last nine episodes, we've laughed, we've cried, perhaps you've been offended, and we've heard some of the best oh shit moments in the industry. But this will actually be the final episode in season one of Risky Business. So stay tuned for future seasons and episodes. We hope you've had as much fun as we've had getting a little bit behind the scenes look at what it means to be a compliance officer. Uh, It's been such a fascinating journey. But before we wrap season one, I do have one more question. How do you navigate the political aspects of compliance, even if we're just talking about company politics and, you know, not the red and blue stuff? Wow. Well, Jordan, you know, I'm not the expert. I've said that many times. I will say it again. But that's exactly what you'll hear today on Risky Business with Greg Brower. We've made the assumption that most kids don't dream of growing up and mitigating organizational risk. Correct us if we're wrong, but we'd love to hear about how you got into compliance. You're right. I didn't grow up dreaming uh, about serving in this sort of role. Had I lived out my dreams, I would probably be retired from having played uh, 20 years at second base for the Milwaukee Brewers, but that didn't (laughs) quite work out. As a lawyer, though, like many lawyers, I've always advised clients on compliance and what we might call quasi-compliance matters. And since starting practicing law, that's been kind of part of what I've done for clients. But I, I first stepped into a purely compliance role somewhat unintentionally. It was back in 2004. I was a lawyer at the Department of Justice at headquarters in Washington, D.C., having signed up following 9-11. And I was sitting in my office one day. I received a call about interviewing for the inspector general position at another agency. So I did the interview, and one thing led to another, and I ended up stepping into the role. And each major federal agency and cabinet department has an office of inspector general which does all of the internal investigations and audits and program reviews for the organization. So essentially, the IG is the chief compliance officer for the agency. I started that job in 2004. I spent the next three or so years in that role. This was at an agency called the U.S. Government Publishing Office, and I really enjoyed it. Learned a lot, really felt comfortable in the role. I eventually transitioned back into a more traditional lawyer's role, first as general counsel at the same agency at GPO. And then shortly thereafter, because I got another uh, one of those calls, I ended up uh, being appointed U.S. attorney by President Bush in my home state of Nevada. And so then served as U.S. attorney here. Fast forward to just a few months ago, I got yet another call about interviewing for a new job. And this time it was as the chief global compliance officer for Wynn Resorts. And one thing led to another. And here I am back in a full-time compliance role and really enjoying it so far. Yeah. When I was you know, looking over your background, what really struck me was, I guess, the scope of different experiences you've had. It's really impressive and definitely something we want to dig into today. But first, I wanted to ask you to share an oh shit moment 
from your career with us. And these are career defining moments, either because you can't believe that just happened, things really hit the fan, or you can't believe you figured it out more of an aha moment. So Greg, what is your oh shit story? That's a really interesting question. I probably have a few, but the one that comes to mind, and I'm not sure I've really shared this story since I was asked during an interview on CNN a couple of years ago. And this is much more of a public oh shit story than I think most compliance officers might be able to relate. But mine relates to the now infamous text messaging situation that the FBI experienced a few years ago. I was a senior FBI executive at the time. And I should maybe just remind everyone of the context. Uh, you, You probably remember that following FBI Director Jim Comey's July 2016 press conference at which he announced that the FBI would not be recommending that Hillary Clinton be prosecuted, there was a firestorm of criticism claiming that politics must have somehow affected the decision and that she was being given a pass for political reasons. And that, as you may recall, led to a flurry of activity on Capitol Hill. Jim Comey testified before a few different congressional committees explaining what went into the decision-making and the investigation. The FBI produced thousands of pages of documents. And the end result after a few months of that really was that everyone more or less had to concede that there was no evidence of any political bias that affected the, the outcome of the investigation. And everything started to calm down as a result. But then, of course, you may remember the big story was the text messages were revealed to exist. And that just blew up everything again. And the text messages I'm talking about, as you may recall, involved messages between two people who were involved in the Clinton investigation, a relatively senior special agent and an FBI lawyer. And the obvious problem with the texts, as they were revealed, that while the vast majority were personal in nature, and that posed certain issues with respect to the fact that they were using their FBI phones for an extraordinary amount of personal texting. More serious was the fact that some of the texts included comments that were very disparaging about Donald Trump. And because Donald Trump during the 2016 election obviously wanted Hillary Clinton to be charged with a crime, the idea now that the investigation was not tainted in any way by any kind of political consideration just became a huge issue again. And while I wasn't in a compliance role at the FBI at the time, I was just about to take on um, an additional role of becoming the FBI's uh, chief congressional liaison. So it became my job for the next six months to try to explain to Congress why the political views expressed in the comments in the text really had nothing whatsoever to do with the investigation. But that obviously proved to be an enormously challenging task. And fortunately, the DOJ inspector general did its own review and found that there was no evidence that the investigation was affected by political bias. But of course, almost no one cared about that conclusion. So I, I look at that as, as the kind of moment that I think you're you're talking about, because I think there are several compliance lessons learned from that episode. But the most basic, I think, is this, that no matter how simple the policy, whether it's just a you know personal use of corporate cell phone policy or whatever the simple policy might be, an organization can't take for granted that the the policy is understood and being followed. Uh, You can't take for granted that repeated reminders and training, even about the simplest policies, really are is important. And it's also a a good example of how a seemingly low-risk policy 
And let's face it, a, a personal use of government cell phone policy doesn't typically present huge risks for the organization. It's, but in this case, we saw that, and there's, and I should add that, that, that the individuals involved are in litigation with the FBI and DOJ, and they dispute the extent to which their cell phone use really did violate the rules. But, but I think everybody concluded, including the inspector general, that it was a grossly inappropriate and unprofessional use of their cell phones. And so the lesson learned, I think, is that even a relatively seemingly minor breach of a policy can have enormously outsized consequences for the organization in a way that in some ways cannot be overcome. I love the story and I I love your takeaway even more. And I think what the story got me thinking about was this relationship between compliance and rules and regulations and politics and opinion. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, you know, how those two things coexist. And I think in terms of politics, it can be broad in the sense of government politics or even internal corporate politics that you would see in an organization. Yeah, that that reminds me of a phrase I use often. I'm sure I didn't coin the phrase, but it, it's lawful but awful. And by that, I mean that as a lawyer, as a compliance professional, oftentimes you look at something that's being proposed deal or a proposed decision, and you look at it every which way and you decide it's not illegal. It's lawful. It doesn't violate a law or a regulation or even an internal policy, but it's an awful decision just because it, it is likely to, to be misunderstood or to result in further scrutiny that's going to just blow everything out of proportion. And that, that's part of what I try to bring to the decision-making process in terms of organizationally when the question is, can we do this? But the first question, is it legal? Does it comply with the law, the relevant regulations and the rules? But the secondary question that I think is much tougher in many ways, is it the right thing to do? It may be legal, it may be lawful, but is it awful? Will it turn out to be awful? Can we explain this? Is it going to create a negative story that we technically can explain, but practically cannot explain? And that, I think, is an important part of the job. Can we pivot a little bit and think about your overall career? What are some of the proudest moments that you see as you look back uh, over the last years? Putting false modesty aside, I guess the one thing I think about in answering that question is it takes me back to my last stint as a full-time compliance professional. And that, again, was when I served as the inspector general at GPO. And when I walked into that job, I immediately encountered what I sensed to be a lot of skepticism from agency management, not about me personally, but just about the role of the IG. Let's face it, nobody in government wants to have the IG snooping around. No, Nobody thinks the IG is useful to the operations and the mission of the agency. But my view was, and, and always has been, that that you really need to, in any organization, whether it's a government agency or a private corporation, you need to embrace the compliance function as something that can be very helpful to the overall mission of the organization. And so at GPO, when I walked in, there was a lot of skepticism and it took a lot of time meeting with my my fellow senior leaders in the organization to convince them that they, we really were there to help by way of investigating what needed to be investigated, auditing what needed to be audited, reviewing what deserved to be reviewed. And we weren't there to play any kind of gotcha game. And it took a while, but after building the right relationships and having constant communication with colleagues, which is, of course, was a lot easier when you could actually walk into somebody's office or go to lunch. It's been tough, as we all know, in the last year to do things like that. But after a lot of work in that regard, I was able to, I think, build 
a, a level of trust with the management team and uh, develop a good rapport while remaining independent because even more so in the IG context, the OIG really has to be independent of management. And so that's important, but you also have to have those relationships and that trust. And I'm proud of the fact that I was, was able to do that in relatively short order. And I bring that experience to my current role. And in, in my current role at Wynn Resorts, I immediately found not a skeptical management team, but a very accepting management team and a very good culture of compliance, which is critical. But the relationships between compliance and the rest of the business can deteriorate if you don't maintain those relationships and maintain the communication. So I think I've started, I've walked into a very good position here, but it's on me to keep that going. And so that's a big part of my focus. Transitioning to talk kind of about when now we talk to a lot of different compliance leaders and compliance programs are essentially, they're like a fingerprint. There's not one size that fits all. They're all different. What do you think is unique at when in the program and, and sort of the requirements and the challenges? Well, I would point to maybe three things and the, the company's not necessarily unique in this regard, but not all companies share these attributes. The first thing is the company is global. We have operations in Macau. And that creates a more complicated compliance environment. The second thing is that the the gaming industry, and as a result, our company is very high, highly regulated. Again, within the industry, we're not unique, but many people, I think, traditionally have assumed just the opposite and have an inaccurate view of the industry from movies, et cetera. But the reality is that between federal regulation by uh, FinCEN at the Department of Treasury and DOJ and the patchwork of state regulations that apply because of the variety of states we operated in. It's a very, very highly regulated industry. And so that presents challenges as well. And then finally, I would say that we're not unique in having been impacted by the pandemic, but our industry and our company has really been impacted very directly and significantly by the pandemic, as has anyone in the kind of the travel or hospitality industry. So returning to normal operations has been and will continue to be very challenging. We're trying to return to normalcy with a very heavy emphasis, of course, on compliance in every respect. And I think we're making very good progress in that regard. I would imagine now, though, if you look at your priorities as in the role, what are they? But I can't imagine most of them aren't have, have nothing. They must have everything to do with COVID, but curious kind of where your head's at from that perspective. In terms of priorities, just to contrast the, the situation I mentioned earlier, when I walked into GPO as the new IG, the office needed a lot of work and the relationships with management were not very good. By contrast, after three months here at Wynn, I'm confident that I've walked into a very good overall compliance reality, both in terms of the corporate culture from the top down and the actual programs that are in place and the people managing those programs. I'm nevertheless reviewing everything, spending a lot of time just looking at everything and looking for ways to, to do things better and more efficiently. But uh, the company has been and I think is on very solid ground in terms of compliance. But getting back to the pandemic challenges, I, I would say that it really is our top priority as a company. And from a compliance perspective, just getting back to normal in a way that complies with state and federal requirements and best practices and protects the health and safety of, of our employees and guests. That's really the number one priority for everyone in the organization right now. And I think we're making very good progress in that regard. And that's an interesting point too. In terms of the reopening, there's got to be specific compliance concerns, I'm sure that you're heavily focused on, including reputational concerns that if, if you reopen the wrong way or something gets out, there's so many like variables to that. Are there, are there very specific key compliance concerns that you are focused on as well? 
Well, there's a whole range of them. They range from just the health and safety issues that you refer to. We take very seriously the safety of our guests. So you're right. We can't afford a situation where a, a guest feels that we're not complying with the, the relevant uh, guidance in terms of health, public health concerns. It's a huge focus is making sure we're getting that right. And that has changed over the last several months as we just progress in terms of information from CDC and from other organizations. For example, we because we did unfortunately have to furlough quite a number of employees and downsize because at one point the entire operation was shut down and then opened up, but with far less business. So as we're bringing uh, employees back to the extent they're new employees, they require that the type of background checks that you would imagine a company like ours does on on all new employees and just trying to plan for that huge increase in the number of background checks for new employees that have to be done. Just looking ahead, which is part of, that's a responsibility shared between our HR and department and our compliance department. All of the things that go into ramping up, it's almost opening a brand new hotel casino because we've really gone from as I said, being shut down to now gradually getting back to normal, or at least we hope back to normal. And so there's just a, a lot of, as you suggest, a lot of compliance issues that go into that kind of uh, ramping up process. Just looking at your career, FBI, DOJ, partners in a law firm, like really just amazingly diverse experiences. Like how has all that sort of impacted your overall view on just ethics and compliance space as a whole? Well, it's a great question, Adam, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I think just about everything I've done before really informs in some way what I'm doing now. All of those varied experiences as a young naval officer, which is an experience we haven't talked about a long time ago, I learned the importance of compliance in all things, small and large, and also learned sailing the high seas on warships, how compliance failures can have catastrophic consequences. And that sort of experience and mentality has stuck with me for the last 35 years. And I think about just the way the Navy uh, does things in terms of training and checklists and compliance to avoid uh, catastrophes and to maintain battle readiness. And I've never forgotten that. And that mentality, like I said, has stuck with me. As a lawyer, you learn the critical importance of following the rules, including ethical rules. And you also learned that the consequences to you and your client, if you don't follow the rules, uh, can be significant. And so as someone who's practiced law for a long time, that has stuck with me and is part of my day-to-day -day approach to compliance. Certainly my IG experience, as we've discussed, informs a lot of what I do as a chief compliance officer and how I approach my role within a bigger organization, understanding that the organization, the business doesn't exist to do compliance. And so while the business needs to be compliant to, to do business effectively and to stay in business, it's not the primary mission of the business. And so the challenge of trying to figure out how to maintain a compliant reality while at the same time helping the business accomplish its mission is something that I learned a lot about when I was a federal agency IG. And then I guess I would also say my experience as a federal prosecutor is critical to how I see compliance issues because I've been on the side of judging companies and their compliance programs as a prosecutor. And so I, I haven't lost sight of that as I now deal with DOJ and regulators and try to try to communicate with them about our compliance program. And I think my experience sitting in, in the seat of the federal prosecutor gives me good insight into 
how they think and what they want to hear and how to communicate. And so you put all that together and 30 plus years of different, but to some extent overlapping experiences, I, I feel like I, I do have a lot to bring to this role and I use it every day. So Greg, we've looked back, I think, on your career a lot so far for our conversation. So I'd love to pivot and talk a little bit about the future of compliance. I'd love to hear you know, your thoughts around what do you think really poses the largest threat to organizations acting ethically? Like at the end of the day, what prevents ethical behavior from occurring throughout an organization? I think there are two questions in there. I, I think to answer your second question, what prevents ethical behavior? I think that's much more complicated, but is in part related to, I think, what the biggest threats are. And I guess I would point to, to, to three threats that may seem obvious, and I've heard others uh, talk about them, but I, I think they remain the big three threats. One is lack of resources. It's obviously important that the compliance function be resourced in a way that allows it to really to be functional, to do, to do its job, perform its mission. And no less than DOJ has, has warned organizations about not properly resourcing the compliance function. I think that remains a potential threat. The second is lack of independence. And this is another thing that DOJ has focused on. The compliance function needs to, in reality, and needs to be perceived within the organization, certainly outside the organization, as, as being independent from management in significant ways, so as to be able to call it like it sees it and make good decisions and give good advice without the, the usual kind of concerns that might come with upsetting the boss. That cannot be the reality. And then the third threat is one that you hear talked about a lot, but it's just the general culture of compliance, including the tone at the very top. And I like to say, and again, I'm not the first to say this, but there's also a tone at the middle reality that is very important. You, you have to have supervisors on the ground who are serious about compliance and can transmit that message down to the folks at the very ground level who, who report up to them. And if you don't have that kind of tone and culture from top to bottom, you, you, you run into problems potentially. Now, again, I, what I've experienced here at Wind Resort so far is that we're adequately resourced, I'm adequately independent, and we have a very good culture. But it, it's about maintaining that, and every organization just needs to be vigilant in that regard. Yeah, I think that culture piece that you touched on is huge and how that trickles down throughout the organization is absolutely essential. I would love to take a step back and look at the compliance industry as a whole. Do you think there's anything that the industry is really getting right or is there anything that you think the industry is really missing the mark on? Well, I will give you a, a, a positive, optimistic answer based upon my observations, not just in the last three months as I've been in this role, but as outside counsel to companies looking at their programs. It, it mirrors what I just said about the threats. I think that increasingly I see evidence of the compliance function within organizations getting the adequate resources that it needs. And so I, I think that has improved over the years, not in, in, in any small part due to the fact that there have been some high profile enforcement actions that have revealed to companies that it's just not something you can play around with and that resources are, are important and will be evaluated by DOJ when there's a problem. And the second, with respect to independence, same thing. I think that some recent enforcement actions have really sent the message very loudly and very clearly to corporate America and organizations of all type that the compliance function has to be independent. As a result, I think that uh, reality has improved significantly over the last decade or so. And then finally, same thing, the culture of compliance, the tone at the top issue I think corporations have really taken that to heart. Boards of directors have taken that to heart. We at Wynn 
resorts. We have a compliance committee. That is a committee of three individuals who are appointed by the board, but they're not board members. Uh, so they're not executives in the company. They're not board members. And their sole function is to advise the board on compliance issues. I report to that committee. And increasingly, I think that in, in industries and for companies where it's appropriate, you're seeing that kind of structure being set up to enhance not only independence, but the right culture. And so I think there's a lot going on out there in terms of compliance that that is good and that is right. And that I think has been the trend recently. And I have no doubt that DOJ and other enforcers will continue to push that trend toward becoming the predominant reality. And I think I've seen a lot of improvement in that regard. When we opened up, we talked about how we figured that most people didn't grow up, you know, dreaming of mitigating corporate risk. But for those that are, or who may just be looking or thinking about getting into a compliance role, what piece of advice would you give to them to get them you know, into the space? As you can, I think, tell from this conversation, I, I think it's a fascinating role. And it's one that I really feel comfortable in and really enjoy. It, it's not for everybody, even very good lawyers, which is the, the pool from which many compliance officers are drawn. It's not a good fit, but I think for a lot, it can be. It's a very different role. It's not an advocacy role in the way that many litigators and certainly prosecutors are used to. It's different. It's much more programmatic and much more management oriented than practicing law as a litigator is. And so for anybody thinking about making the transition, it, I would say it is a transition and there has to be a transition in thought and approach because it's just a different function. It's a different set of skills. But I would certainly advise it as a good career move for anyone who is interested. I think that one, maybe the uh, critical thing that I would recommend to those who are about to embark uh, on, on a compliance career or a new compliance role is that you really have to get the, to know the business. And I think the best outside lawyers do the same thing, right? When you take on a new client, whether it's for a litigation matter or what have you, or a deal, I think the best lawyers really try to learn the business and that's important, but it's absolutely even more critically important if you're stepping into an organization in a compliance role, you absolutely have to spend a lot of time learning the business and developing those relationships with the ultimate goal, not just being knowledge of how the business is, is run, and the nuances of that, but also the goal of just developing the trust that will allow you to then be able to get the information you need and deal with the problems that inevitably come up from a position of trust with the people who you need to, you need to rely on for that information. And that only comes with just getting to know them and developing those relationships. What, at the end of the day, does compliance and ethics mean to you? That is a big question, and it's easy to answer it with cliche compliance is doing the right thing when nobody's looking or something like that. And I think that's true. But I, I guess I would give a slightly longer answer and put it this way. I, I think that the fundamental thing that every compliance professional must understand is that, as I said before, no organization exists to do compliance, right? Rather, every organization has a, a, its own mission, whether it's to sell products, whether it's to provide hospitality, provide healthcare, provide public safety, whatever the mission of the organization is, it's not to do compliance. But in my experience, I, th I think the reality is that every organization needs to pursue its mission in a way that is compliant with the applicable laws, regulations, and its own rules. So to use the cliche, good compliance is good business. I absolutely believe that's true. 
And compliance professionals need to understand that they're part of a team that is trying to accomplish that, that overall business mission, uh, not just the compliance mission. And so in part, that's what ethics and compliance mean to me. Now, to drill down on that uh, further, to answer it a different way, I think compliance and ethics in a way means, as I said, doing the right thing, but that can tend to become a fuzzy concept with the complexity that can attach to a particular uh, decision. The easy questions call for easy solutions, and that's not the bread and butter of a good compliance officer. It's dealing with the more the difficult issues, the gray areas. It really boils down, in my experience, to a fundamental kind of right and wrong analysis. And as I mentioned earlier, the lawful but awful concept, I think, really is an important one for compliance officers to keep in mind. Sometimes a particular decision is perfectly or at least arguably legal, but is it the truly best decision for the organization? And it's that kind of conversation that the compliance officer needs to be able to have with corporate leadership in a way that is is productive and designed to to, to achieve the best interests of the organization. That's the, the key when it comes to getting compliance and ethics right. How is this decision going to be viewed? Is it something that the compliance committee that the board of directors can defend? What's going to happen when the media asks about it? All of those things make the compliance analysis, the ethics analysis somewhat more complicated. But I think that sometimes if you look at a decision or a problem that seems complicated, seems gray, and you just step back, and just ask yourself, is, it, is this the right decision? Is it ethical in, in terms of however you define that term? Can we defend this decision? Does it seem to be the right decision? And if there's any queasiness about that, it's probably the wrong decision. It's easy to say all of that. It's a lot harder to apply that analysis to a real life dilemma. I know, but that's what makes the job interesting. And I think that's the kind of approach that anybody in, in this business needs to take it, to be able to make decisions or at least give advice on decisions that are not easy without regard to who might be unhappy or what negative impact it might have on the business. You have to take the longer view and try to convince the business of the bigger picture and what making a particular decision means for the long run, all things considered. And that can be difficult. That can be difficult. Do you have an OSHIP moment that you'd like to share knowing that it will help others like you? Shoot us an email at riskybusiness at We'd love to hear from you.